Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to our final episode in this three-part series with Chuck Gerard. It's been an absolute pleasure to spend time with him. Uh, for many of you, you recognize Chuck as one of the founding members of Love Song, but he's also a songwriter, a singer, a worship leader. Uh, tremendous, tremendous testimony that he shared with us over these three parts. I really would encourage you to go back, listen to part one and part two if you haven't. Uh, we have heard a lot recently about the Jesus movement, especially around the release of the movie, The Jesus Revolution. Uh, Chuck was at the heart of that back in those days, and he is about ready actually to release a new album for the first time in years. We talk about that. But we also talk about his struggles uh, with alcohol, with drugs. And in this final episode, we go deeper into his testimony moving forward. Uh, what is ahead? Uh, we talk a lot about Calvary Chapel, the experience that he had out there during the Jesus movement. So please just sit back, enjoy this final interview with Chuck Gerard as we bring to you just a different way of thinking of our spiritual journey through the eyes of someone who lived it many many years ago when he, quite frankly it was one of the greatest revivals that this country's ever seen if not the greatest during the jesus movement welcome to the embracing brokenness podcast where our goal is to engage with all of those willing to venture deeper into their transformational journey with christ here's your host and co-founder of embracing brokenness ministries steve adams but Asbury has come up as the new Jesus movement. I, I saw that. And here's the difference, okay? I won't go into a long diatribe on it. No, These are all moves of God, Toronto or whatever. You yes. know, even maybe went off the rails. There was some good stuff happening. A little there. bit, right. Brownsville. But the difference was <clears throat> these movements, these modern movements, are, were based more on signs and wonders and charismatic, yeah. charismatic uh, events of kids getting hit with the Holy Spirit, which is all good. Uh, mm -hmm. Speaking in tongues, all this stuff. Calvary and the whole Jesus movement was built on three things. We wanted to hear the word. We wanted yes, to learn the word Bible. of God. We wanted to worship God. Yes. And we wanted to see our friends saved. Yes. So that's where it separates it. You know, there. Uh, Chuck was Smith was somewhat almost overprotective in the sense that he didn't want any of that. He came out of Foursquare and what he right. called mania. And he didn't want that in his church. He felt that was like worked up and emotionalism. So he discouraged it, which was overreaction. But in the alt, in the afterglows, that stuff happened. I watched yeah. Lonnie Frisk cast demons out of people in those in those meetings, but that would never happen in church. Right. And that part of the movie where Lonnie does that kind of ministry didn't really happen that way. That might have happened in an afterglow, but um, nothing like that ever happened in an actual church service. Uh, Meeting of Calvary Chapel, <clears throat> even in the evening or on Sunday morning. So uh, th there were a lot of uh, liberties taken with the the movie. When I first, <clears throat> excuse me, when I first watched it, um, I was shouting at the screen. It didn't happen that way. Why did you change that? I'm sure you <laughs> were. <laughs> this is not a documentary, and I settled back and I started to enjoy it at that point. But there was a lot of liberties taken with a lot of the uh, the way those things all came down. There's a lot of it is fictionalized. What I wish they would have done, and I, this is all I'll say, because I love the Irwin brothers. They're, they're very respectful to us. They love the era. Anything they did, they didn't do it out of wanting to 
change the history. They did it out of love for the movement, trying to make a good movie. But um, what I wish they would have done is just fictionalized all the characters and say, based on actual people, based on actual incident, but here's Pastor Phil and here's Harry the Hippie. Mm -hmm. And then they could have done whatever they wanted and had full reign to dramatize the story. But if you're kind of depicting that this is how the people were, it's really off. Um, Chuck well, was and they, were, they were trying to also um, chronicalize uh, Greg Laurie's story, too, right? In that right. big piece of it. Which was also highly fictionalized. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Pirate's Cove was a, a pretty important piece of the, the puzzle oh, yeah. for, for baptisms. In fact, that's is that where you... You and Karen connected, right? Your wife? At, at that's right. Yeah, that's awesome. We first met uh, before that. Uh, one of her friends had a crush on me. <laughs> okay, that's a big so story. <laughs> three girls and three guys. We didn't date, right? So it's yeah. let's go eat and three, three girls. But they had set it up. The girls had. Because oh. I mean, meet this girl. So we went to, to whatever, lunch, dinner, whatever it was. And um, I had, my sights were in another girl. Not my future wife and not the girl that was interested in me. I, there was another girl I was kind of paying attention to. So they're all laughing, looking. They know what's going on. I don't. <clears throat> and that was it. We left that, you know, we had a nice meal and we left. And then I didn't think about it after that. And then I met Karen. It may have been the very first ocean water baptism. We've talked oh. about it, my wife and I. Maybe that was the first one. And she was there separately. We weren't there together. And I saw her. And I said, hey, aren't you the girl from the restaurant? Yeah. And we started talking. That wasn't the attraction for me. Mm -hmm. um, it was. I mean, of course, you love the way she looks and there's a sexual attraction. But the real thing was our spiritual attraction. So in the yeah. world, it was physical first. Maybe it got to some kind of a mental where we conversed and had something in common and never spiritual. And I think it was God showing me the opposite. You you connect spiritually first. Mm. You have intellectual um, companionship, and then ultimately, then when you get married, you'll the physical part. So it was kind of a swap for me, and that's how uh, we met. And then we dated for about a year. And um, one day, I was on a tour, and God said, "Marry Karen." So I called wow. her up said how fast can you put a wedding together <laughs> we were married well that's a great story and i and, and of course that was gosh were you what year was that then for you 71 so we're 71 right second anniversary yeah yeah and then it wasn't too well i guess you struck out on your own and so love song continues for a while and there's you have some great stories by the way and um you know for anybody that wants to go deeper i would again i'm going to I highly recommend get the book. I couldn't put it down. There was so much here. Look at all the little flags I have in here. Uh, but um, I think it was uh, 75, right? When you struck out on your first solo album and then there was Chuck Carr Band. Of course, you were, I think you were thinking about naming that first album Rock and Roll Preacher and you got sidelined from that. <laughs> but maybe that was good from a marketing and PR perspective. But um you started to move in that direction in in your own solo tour how how was that i don't know that must have been difficult right you're leaving a, a group of guys a, a, a way of life but at the same time realizing you have your own creativity your own direction that god is moving you into and and you're married now and you're moving in this direction right well all of us were kind of in that place uh, what the 
part of the stimulus for us disbanding was the fact that we had become very well-known Christians very quickly. Within months, we were, right. you know, nationally known, and we'd never known what it was like to just be in the service, go and be a Christian, and let right. someone else do the music and ministry. It was not the full part of it. We had enough tension back behind the scenes. We were baby Christians. We bickered and we argued about things, but uh, primarily it was a thing of um, we need to see what it's like to just be normal as Christians. And so after about three years, we, we'd been having some skirmishes and some of the problems were the fact that led to my solo album is that uh, I was the main songwriter, but there other guys were writing some great songs and we didn't have enough room. We make one album a year, maybe to accommodate everybody's songs. So, you know, I want my song on the album and why can't this be? And we had those sure. same all bands get into and uh, so I decided, you know what, I'm I'm going to start recording some of my songs separately. I wasn't intending to have the group disband at that point, but I thought I could have it both ways. I could do some solo stuff and then still do, you know, a lot of people did that. And right. band identity. Well, by the time my solo album was kind of in progress, the band decided to disband. And so I think it was late 73 or early 74. Our attitude was we, we felt like we said, Lord, if we're going to disband because we thought about it before, but we never felt like God had led us to make that step. Mm -hmm. We still didn't really feel that way. So we said, well, Lord, we're going to, we're going to walk through that door. We're going to disband. And if, we, if we're not in your will, make us miserable. And if we are in your will, bless it. Well, he blessed it. That's and awesome. everybody went on to their own lives and began to uh, have their, I went back into music. Tommy um, started Maranatha records with uh another guy calvary chapel jay went back into architecture bob went into he was a had a, a bug extermination business and but they were also <laughs> kind of into music but we got to feel like normal christians for the first time and then of course my album was already started so in 75 um we finished it and it came out and because of the song i believe sometimes hallelujah which became very popular very quick yeah. um i made that transition very quickly that's a hard some some guys never really ever accomplished to come out of a very successful band identity and right. make a solo identity that really catches on yeah you see that all but, over even rock music all kinds of places right if i remember pizza terror for example and others you know just different times it worked it didn't work yeah, yeah. well even the beatles you know separately yeah huge stars but still if the beatles could come back right now they'd be so much bigger than paul mccartney or anybody yeah, exactly <clears throat> so anyhow that was my problem and that song kind of <clears throat> solved it for me because um jimmy swagger picked it up as his theme song many people recorded it and second chapter of acts were on my background vocals on that song so that song to me transitioned me into the uh, the other aspect of that album was i i kept all the controversial songs off that first album because I, I, I did a lot of songs that um, would actually come every other album because I would feel like I need to put out a safe album to keep my kid <laughs> on. I need to sell enough albums to make another one. Oh, that's funny. I'll put, uh, you know, um, more controversial songs on Glow in the Dark and then I'll make a safe album. It was never a co uh, um, compromise because they were valid songs, but just how I put them together, there was a method to that. And so that worked. These were upbeat, 
positive songs about experiences with God and um, the album did very well and set up my solo career. And then right. I continued with that to this day. And so then I together and traveled that way, you know, as well. And I think what I love about, um, about this time in, in the book, I think it was in chapter 22, if I'm not mistaken. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter and verse on my book. That's how about true. that? See, how about it? Well, it, has, it also helps to have notes. Uh, but it in um you called it a time of correction. So without it's 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 um brokenness shows up in a lot of different ways in our lives, and it and it rarely um it, it rears its ugly heads in the most opportune time, but sometimes the transparency and the authenticity, like I said earlier, that you showed here, we all have moments where we just have to come face to face with the things that have dragged drug us down for so long we call them isms around here uh dysfunctional behaviors people called them sin uh you were honest enough to share with um, your readers uh and if you just give us um maybe the, the big view of that here what was the time of correction what was what was that like for you and what where did that come from well actually we wrestled that was actually something that began in 1970 when i became yeah. a christian and filtered through the that decade to the first deliverance which was was around 1980 and my wife and i wrote the book together and we sat there and we thought about should we weave this into the overall narrative of your story which is actually basically very victorious and uplifting yes. but then we thought that's going to make it a book about, about alcohol addiction so we decided to leave that aspect out of the general narrative and then deal with it in kind of appendix chapters later on, which is what we wound up doing. But it actually was something that started early on in my Christian walk. Uh, I had come out of the drug scene and I had been delivered. I really believe I was fully delivered from drugs and alcohol when I became a Christian. But there was still this sort of darkness and emptiness i i didn't do uh, the way i describe it is i don't didn't do normal very well i had mm. had about 10 years of almost every day of my life being on some drug or alcohol or something all of a sudden now i'm supposed to be a normal person and it was very difficult either the chemicals i don't know what the you know reason mm. was so i found what i call the loophole scriptures you know <laughs> take a little <laughs> wine for your stomach's infirmity Jesus turned the water into wine. And I know there's a lot of debate about whether it was real wine or not, but I'm convinced it was probably stronger wine than we would have today. I believe yeah. it was fully alcoholic. Yeah. And uh, so I made an excuse out of it. And I'll really carve this down because it's a long story. But again, yeah. people get the book and enjoy the, the full details. Um, it, it During the uh, 70s, I went through different progressions of um, getting stronger stuff to drink for different reasons and by the end of the 70s i was in a really bad place and there was a couple of times i always managed to keep ministry and alcohol separate and to a certain degree and never as separate but i mean i was mm -hmm. never really i was never drunk on stage or you know i was always careful to separate those two things activities but toward the end it began to blend and i had a couple of bad situations on stage toward the very end and i knew i was in really bad shape and my wife knew it too it had been through nine years of this and so she couldn't take it anymore and she staged an intervention uh i didn't know it was called that and uh it was chuck smith and ken gullickson who had mm -hmm. founded the vineyard in my living room right. and karen and 
long story short, they opted for me to go into a program. They said, if you, if you want to continue, if you, you know, actually they had kind of given Karen permission to kick me out of the house, not divorce, but separate. Right, right. So I saw the writing was on the wall and, and I'm convinced the only thing that a, a person that has is a, a addiction problems understands is an ultimatum because if there's a little corner to weasel out, we'll right. weasel it. We can, right? right? So they that's what an intervention is. You decide ahead of time before the emotional aspects get in what you're going to do. What's the plan of action? So I went into this hospital for three weeks and got dry. And um, what that means is I didn't drink again for the first year. Uh, well, actually, for 15 years. So I misspoke there. But the first year was miserable. I came out of the hospital uh, with three weeks of sobriety, so I already had a little bit of momentum going, but it was still really dark. And I, now I didn't have a coping mechanism. So I spent that first year, I was like terrible. I'd get up in my bathrobe in the morning and I couldn't even get my day started till three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And it was just a horrible season, you know? And then all of a sudden, um, again, too long to go into right now, Karen and I had this very heart-to-heart -heart talk, and I, I had a revelation, is the only way I can say it, of the fact that sh she had lost all love and respect for me and mm -hmm. kind of wished that if, if I had died, it would have made her life, mm. uh, you know, freed up her life. I, I She didn't want me to die. That's not the point of it. But, mm. you know, it was that it was so desperate. And what happens with person uh, people that are in that situation when someone says something like that, they think, oh, you're just angry right now. You'll be all right. right. You know, tomorrow you'll be okay. And it will let it. Well, this was real. And I saw it. The Holy Spirit let me see it was crushing. I mean, mm -hmm. I actually got a broken heart over it. I know what a broken heart feels like. Yeah. And it's more than just a, a thing in a song. It's almost a physical thing that happens to you where you really feel mm -hmm. like you know, there's something going on physically with you as well. So it took about the Lord gave me some instruction about winning my wife back. And um, actually what he said was, he said, don't take any, you can keep the bookings you have, but don't take any more bookings. Just stay home and serve your wife and don't blame her for anything. Take all blame, which was mine. Well, it's never all yours, but you know, there's always somebody how they react, but, and that's what I did for six months. And it took a couple of years and I won her love back. Mm. But it wasn't easy. Yeah. You know, people people say, oh, that happened to me. And But after two or three years, I was okay. And you're just at the beginning of it. You're going, two or three years? I, I want this back now. Right. So then um, we got back restored in my ministry. Around 1981, I started to get these different uh, kinds of songs for that became the album Name Above All Names, which were more prophetic more for the church. And the ministry continued to flourish. And then I stayed dry for about 15 years, and then I got cocky. I started going to Europe a lot. I had some mm. friends in the military that would bring me over to Europe, and I, right. I, I traveled. Sometimes I go over two, three times a year for weeks at a time. Right. Traveled mostly uh, Germany, Austria, and uh, Switzerland. Well, they didn't drink, but over in Europe, they drink like we drink water. And so if you go into a restaurant, you have a meal, they bring you a, a little liqueur at the end. It's free. You don't order it. They just right. like chips at a Mexican restaurant. Well, they didn't drink. So they'd leave their drink on the table and, you know, we'd walk out to the car and I go, oh, I left my glasses. And I go back and I because I felt like I could drink now like a normal person because I'd been delivered. Well, I couldn't. 
you know, it was just deception. And so I got back into the, the, the cesspool much quicker and much deeper this time, but it was also much shorter. And um, this was about a two year period. And I was still just as miserable as I was the first time, maybe more. And one day I looked in the mirror and it's hard to explain because it was not a vision. I didn't see myself as a skeleton or a dead man, but there was this thing where I, I saw that you are, you're going to die. I saw myself as a dead man, but it wasn't a vision. It was just a knowing. Hmm. You won't live another six months. And it was probably the Lord speaking to me, but it was not dramatic like the first time if you don't quit. And so I put down. I didn't go to a hospital. I, it, didn't, it wasn't a struggle. Just quit. It was late 1999, and that's the last alcohol I've ever had since then till now, which is 23 years later. So what's the point? We struggled. Karen, boy, it's too bad that second time happened because it's such a clean, powerful story. But what I figured out was it was my motivation. And I said, the first time I did it for everybody else, mm -hmm. I can't bring... I can't bring shame to the name of God and be another minister that's, you know, being a hypocrite. I can't do this to my wife, but boy, I would sure drink if I could, right? Mm. Type of thing. So the second time, it was for me. I mm. saw the nail was in the coffin. I was going to die. I didn't want it in my life anymore. It actually felt like cheaper, like lesser. I said, Lord, you know, it's a better motive to do it for you, for your glory. Yeah. Felt yeah. like God said, well, you do it for you and I get glory. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. And everyone will benefit. So just that's okay. Do it for yourself. And that was what really turned the tide to where I really didn't desire alcohol anymore. That's a great. great people drink, you know, you know, some of my friends still drink in restaurants and stuff. Uh, doesn't bother me. It doesn't tempt me. Other things do, but not that. Well, so. Sure. sure. Well, and they, and they always, then it's hard. It's, you know, anytime we're up against something that grips our life to that extent. Um, you know, we can only get deliverance from him. I'm convinced that, you know, as believers, the Holy Spirit has a place um, that it, he's jealous. There's no, there's no other place uh, than for him in our life. And so thanks, thanks for sharing that. I know that's a, that was a hard time for you, but the victory is his. And that's the, the greatest part of their story that you're telling uh, you. Um, you had the opportunity uh, to uh, honor Chuck, a big part of your life uh, as you finished. You mentioned that uh, in 2010, I think it was, that you got a chance to tour. And he was, I almost felt, because I was, I remember when he came to Philly, I remember when he 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 uh, went across country and had a song, you all come back together. Uh, in fact, you know, it was funny. I, you know, again, I went searching, right, for uh, vinyl. <laughs> And guess what I found? I didn't find any Truck Gerard albums or love song albums because I was convinced I had one. But do you remember this one now? The Best of Praise Volume 2 by Maranatha Music? I don't well, know. That was, that was Tommy's album. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So so I pulled the sleeve out. This is 83, right? And here, Bring My Body Closer uh, was on this, right? Words by you, a music by you, and Fred Field. So I found one. How about that? <laughs> so, well, I two songs bring my body closer and praise the lord praise okay. the lord praise yeah. to jesus those are actually love song tunes without yeah. credit you know like th there was us playing and we just went in and did those two songs and tommy put them on on the album uh, yeah. 
without crediting them as love song. But well, I remember it, uh, pieces of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so those are some of the uh, catalog that people don't know about. And um, yeah. But you had a chance to, 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 what was it like to be able to hit the road again back in 2010 with Chuck and be part of that? You know, in hindsight, now knowing that he died shortly after that, uh, we thought Chuck would live forever. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> especially cancer. Here's a guy that had one cup of coffee in his life. I know. When he was firefighting and he needed some drink. How about uh, that? Drank alcohol, never smoked. Um, oh. Here's the deal on that. You know, what happened was late um, 209, something like that, um, they had found this, uh, I'll, I'll cut this story short, but they'd found a concert of ours that was, it was such an amazing document. We had done this concert in 73 in San Antonio at, um, oh, what's the college name? I forget, anyhow, a uh, big Christian college there. And no one videoed anything in those days, but this right. group came to us, This these kids, Trinity College, I think. Trinity, yes. These kids came to us and they said, we just started this video class. We want to video your concert tonight as a project. Do you mind? Well, no, of course. So they filmed the whole concert, five cameras, the whole deal. And that tape got lost. We don't, uh, we don't know exactly how it wound up at Calvary. Okay, so Calvary is cleaning out closets. And they take a bunch of these two-inch tapes with all kinds of video on them. They're going to go to the dumpster with them. And this one wow. guy says, you know, we ought to see what's on here because they're not even marked. So they got some kind of a machine that they could play on. And they found this concert. Well, they brought it, a little copy of it to Chuck. They said, Chuck, look what we found. And he just, they sat there. He said, Chuck, we sat in the office and we wept as we went through mm -hmm. the memory of your concert. So they, unbeknownst to us, they cleaned it up for like two years. They had it re-color um, corrected and the whole really? thing. The sound was really good on it. So that was a, a blessing. And um, they were going to release it. So Chuck calls me. I'm living in Nashville now. He says, uh, he was, oh, it's so funny. I hadn't talked to him in probably 10 years. He didn't say, hey, Chuck, how you doing? How's the family? He says, uh, Chuck, we found this these tapes. And oh, it goes, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. We found these tapes and we want to put them out. This tape of your concert. How do I get the rights for the songs? And I said, Chuck, you've been wanting to buy the catalog forever since I've known you. Why don't we try to just get you, you buy it? You'll have all the rights. So long story short, I brokered that deal. The, 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 he'd done, he tried it twice before and everything broke down. Somebody would go off to Austria to Europe and they'd stop calling. Right. So I stayed in. I, I call up. The two parties were Freddie Pirro, who had the label that we were on, and Chuck Smith. So I stayed in, and if Freddie didn't call, return a call, I'd call him up and say, Chuck wants to talk to you. Get on the phone and <laughs> call Chuck. Say, Freddie called you. Did you? you know. So finally, we brokered the deal. And uh, the um, sale was made, and Calvary then owned our stuff. So in the in the um, process of getting all that back, and the Chuck wanted to re-release everything on, you know, they were already digitized, and we just needed to put them out. He said, "Would you guys like to just take it on the road again?" You know, uh, hmm. yeah, sure. You know, so because he's Chuck. Uh, he'd call up these churches like probably Joe Foch in I Philadelphia. Right. And in two weeks, it'd be booked. That never happens, you know. But because it was Chuck and Love Song, these guys would say, I'll make room if you're coming but my way. We'll have you for a night. <coughs> so we put, <coughs> excuse me. 
So over two years, we put together tours that covered the nation. They 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 were only two week tours because Chuck only wanted to miss one Sunday. So we'd figure it out where he'd come in on a Monday and leave on the next Saturday or two weeks right. later. Right. So he could be home for church. And sometimes we'd go play the Sunday without him. But fundamentally, most of them were Chuck and, and Love Song. But he was the draw. When they, you know, when they a lot of these young pastors um, had never met him, he was the Pope. I'll tell you, it's not in the book. This is a quick story. We played for a, a, a around this time. We played. We were getting ready to go on the road, and Chuck wanted to get exposure, so he said, "Come down, play at the the Murrieta at the uh, pastors' gathering they had it at the their conference ground." So we played that night, and. Um, our drummer did a solo as he did every time we played just about. And then he got up to speak and he asked for a towel to wipe off the sweat. So he wipes the sweat off his face and he throws the towel at Chuck and Chuck catches. It. Well, there's almost an audible gasp goes up in the audience. And later on, we found out these pastors, they couldn't understand the familiarity. We were Chuck's sons. Right. We could throw the towel at dad, but right. they couldn't. Right. And it was, this this big thing, these these guys were in reverence of Chuck, you know. They so if, if they had an opportunity to meet him and have him come to their yeah. churches, they were right on it. So here's the upshot, though. Uh, Chuck's nephew, Chuck Brom, who ran Maranatha yeah. Records, called Maranatha Music. He said, "You know, you guys have helped my my uncle get out from behind the desk, and you've helped him finish well." Wow. And that was the coolest thing anybody said yeah. about that whole thing. We were able to go out. Chuck was, um, he was so thrilled to get out. He, you know, he'd been chained to that desk for years, just oh, making sure. and all this stuff, you know, just preaching and stuff, but not really getting out with the boys. Yeah. And he was so refreshed by that whole thing. And we would have these long, we had a box set that was very popular. And all we sell our music. We had lines to sign stuff that were an hour long. Wow. We'd sit there at these tables and we'd sign for an hour. I'd go in after an hour of signing and Chuck Smith would be, he'd have a line of 50 people. He'd stay afterward and he'd meet with, he had little kids on his knees signing books, which was not him, by the way. He never signed at Chuck Smith. No, he, he did. I get it. Yeah. And so he was having a time. And I, I feel that's the most wonderful thing about that tour was that we were able to ha help him get out and get among his what he built go see what you built yeah. go see what god did with your life yeah. and then of course in 2013 he goes to be with the lord so we've always felt very touched and moved that once again we got to be that amazing part of chuck's life and of course by the very turnaround by him being an extended part of our lives as well well and i um i had several opportunities to to meet and talk with him and i remember it's just, you know you meet people who just really um get god who have this sweetest spirit it's almost that they really understand you know being in the presence of god uh, for so long and so often there's just this almost this reflection you know that god talks about you know we're to reflect jesus in our life and it's one thing that i I probably remember most just a genuine concern for the person standing in front of him. It's as if you were the only one there, you know, and it doesn't surprise me that he would have waited for the last person to come uh, anytime he would have been in a situation like that. So I have really appreciated 
the ministry of Calvary Chapel over the years, and I, I've I probably learned more by attending uh, Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia at the time for just a few years back in the um, in the eighties. But I was there for quite a while into the nineties. But just realizing, looking back, how I learned probably more about the Bible in a few years than I had learned in my previous twenty five. Oh, yeah. Just there's just it's you know you dig into the word from cover to cover and i would encourage by the way anybody listening or any part of our audience you can still get chuck's teaching on on audio and video and any uh way that you can get your hands on that it's it, it's just solid from the word so i would encourage it i want to make a recommendation i yeah, just please his bio yeah it's called, uh, a miracle of grace or something yes and all these stories are in this book and it's well written. Chuck Jr. helped him. And okay. it's really kind of a, something that anybody that's interested at all in Calvary Chapel or how Chuck Smith ticked. It's a great book. Uh, yeah, I read it one day. I never read a book in one day. I read the whole <laughs> well, thing. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for that. That suggestion. I appreciate it. So if you were going to leave us with one thing, you know, I always like to try to wrap in a way that people could um, relate. Um, a few final thoughts, uh, your experience through the years, uh, being a part of something uh, like the Jesus movement, uh, what stood out? What would you what would you want to leave our audience with as we close here? This is always the hardest question, you know, because there's so much you could say. A lot of times I say, what would you say to the youth or whatever? But mm -hmm. here's the I was privileged to live through something that was truly of God. If you really talk to anybody that was back we'll talk strictly calvary yes. everyone will say god did this we did had people used to come in and see chuck and ask him what the program was at calvary and he'd just say the holy spirit and that is the absolute truth nobody contrived mm -hmm. anything part of the problems with what's going on in worship and with these even these new revivals is that people are going having a baptism at um pirate's cove because they want to see the new um mm -hmm. Jesus movement happened. Uh, I was a part of the genuine move of the Holy Spirit. And over the years, I've learned that you're never anything important. The only important thing you ever do will be what you do to serve God. I remember Chuck sharing that what one of the things that put him over the edge, he was going to become a surgeon. And somebody came to his church and they said, um, um, uh, that old saying about uh, only what's done for Christ will last. And it turned him around because he saw that the only thing of value that he would have to offer people, would, he could be a surgeon and he could uh, help you on a limited temporal basis. But it, if he wanted to affect your future and your eternity, that's what led him to become Chuck Smith, the pastor. And one thing he maintained throughout... One of the, when we made this documentary, we we're putting together people's comments that are complimentary to us. And one of my watchwords to the guys when we analyze everything, I'd say, guys, here's a couple of yardsticks. First of all, what will your peers think about what you say? Because mm -hmm. if someone else is making the documentary, they can say whatever they want. They're bragging about you, but we're kind of bragging about ourselves in a way. So what would your peers think? What would the guys that, that stood alongside you and came up and played music as well. And then what would Chuck Smith do if he was making a movie of his life? And it kind of kept us in perspective because Chuck was always the one. He never wanted any glory to go to anybody but God, not himself. I doubt he'd ever even have a movie made. I'm surprised the book came out. 
Right. That's how Chuck was. So always remember that you're really basically nothing. And I don't mean in a dish rag way, you know, oh, I'm nothing. Just realize that it's all about God. You have to get your perspective correct. Anything that you good that you do in your life is because God did it through you. Yes. Used to kind of bristle a little bit when people would say something like God's done powerful things through you or whatever. Mm. You know, the the whole or or they have a powerful ministry for God, whatever they say. And I say, well, the only thing that really matters is what God does through you. Right. You know? That's right. So Keeping that perspective of humility, no matter how much God uses you or doesn't use you, it's irrelevant. The important thing is that you're obedient to your call your life, that yes. I feel. Yes. And that may involve fame. Some people think that you become a famous Christian. It's a big deal. And you oh, whoop de doo I wish I could be like Billy Graham. But really, I think the most important people in the kingdom, when we see that if there was a top 10 in heaven, it would probably be eight of the 10 names of people, people whose names we never heard before, yes. you know, yes. you've been listening for Billy Graham and he's not yes. there. And then you hear Madge Smith, you're number eight because you prayed for Billy and That's you made right. it that kind of thing. So if we keep that perspective that God's called us and we're trying to be obedient and keep your life straight, we've got so much uh, junk in the church now with, with these weird doctrines that are, you know, my daughter, you've, you've yes. uh, 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 interviewed Elisa Childers with her book Another Gospel, yes. keeping aware of all that, but just you know, keeping in the Word, keeping it real, keeping obedient, keeping humble. These are the things that that are important to God, in my opinion. And um, if you do that, um, you're gonna have a, a good walk, good a good run. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, Chuck. If somebody would like to learn more about you of course they can probably get this book uh where any books are sold or certainly on amazon but but if they wanted to reach out or understand more about what your ministry is where would they go where should they go more about the documentary any suggestions uh, there let me do a couple of little promotions here my yeah, website my website is chuckgerard.com Re real easy it's g-i-r ARD and uh, it, it's it's really all the information that you could ever want about me. It's got my lyrics, it's got my uh, songs. You can download stuff. It's a great. great site in in that regard. And then I'm uh, we're working on this documentary that we hope will come out very soon uh, because we want to catch the wave of the Jesus Revolution. Right. And what the documentary is is really the the unadulterated story behind the Jesus Revolution. Uh, what they should have called the movie was The Jesus Revolution, The Story of Greg Laurie. This would be The Jesus Revolution as seen through the eyes of the band Love Song. Okay. And, uh, but we've vetted all the facts again, like you said about my book. Right. And uh, it's the actual stuff that really happened. And it would be very interesting to anyone, whether you lived it or not. I'm also making my first studio album in decades, which should be out. Well, hopefully, who knows? It's already been four years in the making, but uh, we're great. really coming to the uh, end of the road here with it, and it'll be out very quickly. It's going to be about 15 uh, songs. Only one has previously been recorded where I reinvented one song. Everything else is new songs. And uh, that's really about it. I'm still available. I go to churches. Um, it's a cheap date. Um, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it yeah we, we come on offerings and uh you know travel expenses and stuff and if people would like to see me come to their church they can uh contact us through the website 
yeah. uh, or through Chuck at ChuckGerard.com. That's an easy email to remember. And I'm still out there doing it. Uh, I'll turn 80 in August. Uh-huh. Still have a voice. We just did Huckabee um, this last weekend. and. Oh. Sounds pretty good. You can go to Huckabee.tv and and see it uh, after the fact. So those are all things, you know, it's great. Here, let me close with this. It's great to be busy at my age. I, you know, when I was 50, I think, what will I do when I'm 70? What will the Rolling (laughs) Stones do when they get to be 70? We're all still rocking, right? That's right. Or not God. And uh, so, you know, um, I'm thankful for my health. I've got very few problems with my health. And still travel. I still carry my own bags and all that good stuff. So give me a call if you want me to come to your church. Well, thank you, Chuck. T- um, we should all be as feisty and as uh, well-rounded uh, and ready to go as you are. So thank, thank you. I sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for spending the, taking the time to join me. I know that our audience will feel the same way about getting to know you and your music and your past and what God did to turn life around and, you know, plant you at the center of one of the greatest uh, revivals that this country's ever seen. It was a time of change. It was a grand experiment, and underneath it, I think, it was a hunger to know God and truth. Where do we go from here? Enter the Jesus movement. God's spirit swept across the country. We'll let the people know. You could feel the presence of God in the music. Love Song would hear his voice. Back in 1970, these hippies came in. They were actually pioneers of writing songs that spoke to people outside the walls of the church. Wow. These these guys are like a combination between the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Their songs would become part of the soundtrack of the Jesus Movement. Hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, got saved during that Jesus Movement. Love Song was a vehicle to spread the gospel with young people at that time. The Jesus People Movement and Love Song in particular, God did an incredible thing in my family's life, uh, which has impacted me. We started singing and people's hearts would change. You could just see it. The Jesus Revolution exploded. Expo 72 was an event in Dallas, Texas. It was sort of the idea of Christian Woodstock. First time anybody, many of these people had ever seen anybody, any hippies actually minister with music and rock and roll and all that. The music of Love Song was part of the soundtrack of the last great American revival. I think that we successfully communicate the gospel very effectively through music. That's, that's, to me, what Love Song has always been about. It is my great honor to induct Love Song into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. Love you guys. Love Song. The band, the ministry, the movement. Let it take you, let it song. This was another episode of the Embracing Brokenness podcast. 
For more information on Embracing Brokenness Ministries or to subscribe to our blog, podcast, YouTube channel, or engage with us on social media, please visit our website at embracingbrokenness.org. Thanks for joining us.